Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 22 of Unknown Orbits, Nightfall by Isaac Asimov. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about the acclaimed story by Isaac Asimov, Nightfall, and we're also going to be talking about early science fiction fandom. To start this off, I'm going to give a little quote that appears at the beginning of the story, which helps to set up the premise. It's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God? The story takes place on Lagash, a planet in a six-sun system where there is always daylight. The story takes place during a 2,500-year eclipse of the solitary sun left in the sky. So what happens is once every 2,500 years, all of the five other suns in their sky are obscured or not available, and there's just one sun left in the sky, and that sun undergoes a total eclipse, causing complete darkness to fall all over the planet. And the residents having never seen darkness during their lifetimes, instinctively go mad when this happens because they've never experienced darkness and they've never seen stars. So this regular eclipse coincides directly with previous collapses of civilization. So we have a group of scientists who are recording the event as it happens, and they've also put forward the theory that it's this eclipse that causes the society to collapse because people are just incapable of dealing with the concept of darkness. That's pretty much the story. It just progresses to the end where the eclipse happens and how society reacts to it. Society does collapse, and as the scientists are in their observatory, they're barricaded inside as the insane people, led by some religious fundamentalists, are attacking them and trying to break in and stop them from recording the event and then the event happens and that's the end and it's kind of a kind of a downbeat ending if i'm not making too fine a point of it the punchline in the story is that there are other stars in the sky they're speculating that darkness is making people mad but when it comes and they can see millions of stars that there's so much out there is what is driving them crazy that's part of it yes because at the beginning of the story it's in question scientifically if stars even exist a lot of people dismiss the idea well there's no such thing as stars it's just a legend and not only do they find out that stars exist but they happen to be in a very dense star cluster so the sky is literally just filled with stars even more stars than we have in our sky so it's a great shock even to the scientists at the end of the story, to see all of these stars filling the sky. So what did you think about this story? One of the points they make in the story is civilization rebuilds itself. From who? The survivors are like children and drunkards and people who wouldn't have seen the sky. Right. And that made me realize this is like Night of the Comet. <laughs> it is. Well, I'm, I'm willing to bet that Night of the Comet probably stole this idea because Nightfall is a highly acclaimed story. It's considered to be one of Asimov's great stories. 
So it certainly was widely read by a lot of people. I think it's a great story. You know, we've talked about Asimov before, that he's not the greatest writer in the world. And this story kind of proves that. There's The characters are kind of shallow. And that's the common problem I'm running into with these weekly written Golden Age stories, where I can't keep the characters straight. They're given one little characteristic, like one has red hair, one guy has red hair, one guy's fat. They're not mentioning the fat guy, then I'm like, wait a minute, is he the reporter or is he the scientist? You know, you get confused because the characters are just so shallow. Have we given a tip or two on differentiating characters or did we just talk about that privately before? I think we talked privately about that. This is a good place to bring it up. Yes, I have literally read a story that had three characters named like Bob, Brad, and Bill. And it's enormously confusing. If you have three characters, you want their names as far apart as possible. One of the traps that I think young writers, early writers fall into is they feel like they have to physically describe their character in detail. And so the first time you see the characters like Bill, who was a six foot tall, muscular man with long blonde hair, piercing blue eyes, and was wearing a gray sweater and black blue jeans and sneakers... And I I remember writing that sort of thing myself. What I've discovered over the years is that you don't really need a lot of physical detail on a character. You can sketch it very lightly and just sneak it in, you know, as you're describing their actions or as part of dialogue or any other ways where it's less obtrusive. Like, do you want to give an example of that? Well, in my beatnik spy novels, I I remember one passage where Gunner, it was early in the book, and Gunner ran his fingers through his curly black hair. And then I had him musing about something, thinking about something. So the, the gesture of running your fingers through your hair as you're thinking about something, you're doing two things at once. You're giving a physical description of the character, but you're also giving a gesture that suggests that he's kind of stuck in thought. Dual purpose dialogue, dual purpose description that gives you physical characteristics of the character combined with an insight into their character or their thinking or any other aspect of that character. That's a really good way to sneak in that physical description. But these early science fiction stories, it's like this guy had red hair, this guy was fat, this guy was an older person. You lose track quickly. One tip I remember that helped me Uh, with the subtleties of a character is to just literally pick someone you know and have that in your head be your character. And it'll kind of naturally come out as a differentiated person. You know, my trick, I have a similar trick. When I start writing a book, I try to picture which actor from the golden age of Hollywood or even more recent would play this character. I like that. So for instance, for Gunnar Quinn, my beatnik spy novels, It's John Garfield. When I think of Gunnar Quinn, I think of a version of John Garfield. And that helps me, just like you said. It helps you set that image in your mind, and then you're not thinking too hard about it. You're just kind of channeling that person into your character. So that's one of the defects here of Asimov's writing. The other one that's in this one is the very clunky exposition at the beginning where it's like, say, isn't that uh, all about this thing that uh, I've heard about? And maybe you could explain it to me. So there's that. 
it was relatively early in Asimov's career, and he didn't really progress a lot as a writer over the years, I don't think. But the point is, it's a great idea. And it was not his idea. He did have good ideas. I've, I've, on I've, his own, but yeah. not in this particular case. Okay. This was a story idea that came from John Campbell. And I think I've mentioned that I think of Asimov early on in his life as Campbell's Frankenstein monster. I don't want to say he created Asimov, but he molded Asimov into the writer that he wanted him to be. And this was very common early on that Campbell would come up with an idea. He would hand it to Asimov. Asimov would go off and write it and come back and maybe they tweak it a little bit. And that's what happened with this story is that he came up with the idea of what if there was a planet that had never saw darkness? What would happen if suddenly there was an eclipse and everything went dark and they saw the stars? And they had a discussion about it, and Campbell's answer was they would all go mad. One of the things that I took out of this, the ending of this story is beautiful. At the moment where everything happens, where the stars come out and the peasants are crashing into the observatory and the scientists are finally seeing what they've been waiting to see, there's this beautiful bit of writing at the very end of the story that's poetic. It's very poetic. And I was reading that after all of the defects we talked about previously in this story. And I was going, I wonder if this last bit that was fairly poetic was actually written by Asimov or if maybe Campbell. Campbell was known for having a pretty heavy hand sometimes. And he, he was a much better writer than Asimov. He was a fairly good writer when he wanted to be. I've never found any evidence. Asimov has never said anything to that effect. Campbell never claimed credit for having done that. But it's just very odd that you've got this sort of clunkily written story that's very perfunctory, that does a good job of telling the story. But then you get to the end and suddenly it's like six paragraphs of really nicely poetic writing. There's a very difficult passage where the narrator of the story is going insane and you get some of that internal process. Yeah. Even the scientists who believe that there are such a thing as stars and are preparing themselves and they understand it, even they can't resist the madness that just inherently comes out of them. Yeah, I think in their preparations, they were saying, oh, there might be as many as 20 or 30 stars in the sky. We must be careful. Right. And it's the sheer number that's so overwhelming that just blasts their reason, to use an old phrase. So I have one little scientific nitpick with this story. I bet I know what it is. When a solar eclipse occurs, I don't ever remember a solar eclipse that blacked out the entire planet. I mean, it doesn't even black out the side of the planet that's facing the sun, much less the other side of the planet. Wait a minute. The other side of the planet would have been already... No, they had the other stars. Once you're you start, right. once you're you start right. thinking this it, through, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. It's basically, it should be like Wisconsin goes insane. Well, yeah. If you remember, there's like a map. Whenever there's a total eclipse of the sun, the newspapers always have a map where there's like a path. You know, it goes through Wisconsin, into Iowa, down into Colorado, down into New Mexico. And if you're in that band, you can see the total eclipse. And that's it. It's not the whole United States. And it's, it's not it's the not even, side. Yeah. It may not even be the whole state of Wisconsin. But this blacks out not only the entire sun-facing half of the planet, but somehow magically blacks out the 
side of the planet away from the sun. You know, it doesn't make any sense. I can't help but try to fix it. And I think you could. I bet they just never really thought it through. There could be a way to fix it because you've got six suns in the system. Like a big eclipse, for one thing. And everyone lives on one small continent that... Something like that. Or, you know, there's another sun that's on the backside of the planet. And that's shining down on the backside of the planet. So it's only this one side of the the planet that's experiencing the eclipse. But then you've got a whole half of a planet that does not go mad. I mean, I'm thinking, what if you had the two suns and you are close enough to each of them to be gravitationally locked so you don't rotate? I don't know if that would put the suns too close to each other. And then you have something every 5,000 years goes between. It's it's tough. It, it's not. It doesn't yeah. work for me. It doesn't work for me any way you look at it. It's a great idea, and it's well executed, and it's got that beautiful poetic ending. But scientifically, and Mr. John W. Campbell, Mr. Science, uh, it was his idea, and he didn't bother to figure out how to make this workable. So to me, it's a little bit of a dent in his reputation that he came up with this idea that was scientifically ridiculous and didn't find a way to make it work. Honestly, I'm starting to believe that his MIT education by that point was sort of like my broadcasting degree, completely unused, barely remembered. Well, you and I have both read the really good biography, multiple biography, the story of Astounding Magazine. I forget the name of the author, but they talk about the World War II years, and he was expecting to be in the military at some high-ranking scientific job, or he was expecting to get a job like Asimov did and like some of the other writers did in a scientific research facility for the military, and he didn't. And it was kind of a bitterly disappointing for him that he wound up having to settle for remaining as editor of Astounding Magazine for the duration of the war because nobody would hire him to do scientific stuff. And maybe that's because he didn't have the credentials that he thought he did, or he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Yeah, he was out of date. I don't think real science is a huge creative push like in fiction. I think Campbell and Heinlein had this view of we come up with this highly imaginative weapon and then develop it. And I'm glad you mentioned Heinlein because he was also disappointed. Heinlein was a former Navy officer. He expected to be brought back into the service to be a, an officer in the Navy and was disappointed that the Navy rejected him. And he wound up becoming an administrator of the very same lab that Asimov worked in. That's how Asimov got the job. So he spent the war behind a desk pushing paper. And Heinlein was very disappointed about that. And he was another guy that had a technical background and advanced education. Maybe that's an indication that that's why they were science fiction writers. If Campbell would have been a brilliant graduate of MIT and he would have been snapped up right out of school and, and had a very long career doing something else. But because that didn't happen, I don't even know if he finished MIT. I think he only attended MIT. I get him mixed up with... Throughout the 1930s, before he was hired as editor, he had a series of odd jobs. Like he was a clerk or sold insurance or something like that. I get his education mixed up with Palmer's, believe it or not. Was he getting help from his father-in-law at one point? I, I don't remember. I might be thinking of Palmer. But I do know that he left MIT. I want to say he didn't finish 
his degree. He left MIT, which, by the way, is a common thing for a lot of these guys in the early days of science fiction, that they attended college but never finished. A bunch of these guys that we've talked about here in the first 20 episodes did that. Now, that may have been due to the Depression, but there were people that were bored. They did two years of college, and they were bored by it, and they left. So that's kind of a profile of the science fiction writer. It was, to some degree, they were a failed technician or a failed scientist or a failed engineer. So let's move on to Asimov, as long as we're talking about Asimov. Asimov was a part of the first generation of organized science fiction fans, which towards the end of the 1930s, you had a number of groups, mainly in New York, that formed as formal science fiction fan clubs. The first officially sanctioned club, the Science Fiction League, was established in 1934 by Gernsbach and his editor, Charles Hornig, of Thrilling Wonder Stories. You would send in 25 cents, and they'd put you on a mailing list. And Gernsbach was big on mailing lists. That was one of the keys to some of the success that he had over the years. He was always in possession of a pretty good mailing list of fans. So the league was kind of following the pattern of all the other fan. Yeah, oh yeah, that was not for... original. A lot of the pulp magazines and the radio shows. The radio shows is what I was thinking of. Same kind of thing. But you had independent groups spring up in later years in the 1930s. And one of the main ones was the Greater New York Science Fiction League, which was led by Sam Moskowitz. He was a big editor and anthologist. He also was kind of the unofficial historian yeah, of fandom. Right. His uh, Days of Wonder, is that, the, is that the book? Days of Wonder and Imagination. That sounds familiar. That's a good book. If you want to learn about the early days of science fiction, Moskowitz's book is very good. He's, he's got two, like fandom up to 1940, and then fandom from 1940 to 1950 or something. Right. They're very hard to get. I haven't been able to get them. There was another group that was sort of a splinter group from the Greater New York Science Fiction League, which was the Futurians, led by Donald Wolheim, another anthologist and editor. In the 1960s, he was the editor of all of the ace paperbacks of science fiction. Wolheim was kind of an asshole. I was going to say a troll. Yeah, a troll. That's a really good description for him. He was a radical communist, very politically driven, and that was one of the main reasons for the schism was that he wanted science fiction to address political and social topics and to be used as a vehicle for advancing Marxism. And just as a little bit of a side note here, throughout the 1930s, Marxism and communism, socialism, was very popular among the, the elite, among the intellectual class. It was almost mandatory that if you were an intellectual of any kind, you would be a Marxist. And it was tied in to some degree to the whole science fiction mentality. The idea that Marxism was a scientific form of government that would lead mankind to a better world. They believed in the ideas of Marxism that it was a better version of democracy, that the working people would have a better share in the world. Think about it. This is during the Great Depression. There was obvious abundant evidence all around you that the economic system was failing that the capitalism system was not working. So it made perfect sense for a lot of people, especially intellectuals, that Marxism was the alternative of the future. And Wolheim was certainly an advocate of that. Now, the unfortunate part of that 
is that you had all of these people who flirted with communism in the 1930s, and many of them turned away from it when the Nazis and the Russians signed the non-aggression pact. That was a shock to many Marxist intellectuals that Stalin allied himself with a fascist, with Hitler, and that caused a lot of people to leave the movement. Not Donald Wolheim. He was a hardcore believer for a long time. The consequence of all of this was that in the 1950s, when the Red Scare took hold, a lot of people had to defend the fact that back in their youth, when they were in college, that they had Marxist sympathies. So that's a bit of a side note, but it gives you kind of a background to what was going on in early fandom here in science fiction, was that you had this highly volatile, trolling Futurians group that was battling with the more standard science fiction league that was more interested in just being fans of science fiction. One thing I thought was kind of funny is that Asimov, in complete innocence, was bouncing between these two groups. Yes, he was definitely part of the Futurians. He was more with the Futurians than with the other one, but he was totally apolitical. And there was a handful of girls involved, and that was the motivator. They were all total nerds. They have like a picture of 10 of them gathered, and it's like, oh my God, I don't think any of these people could have ever gotten a date with a girl. My mother was a science fiction fan in the early 50s, and she hung out with some of these groups. And as a result, I found some materials like early fanzines and that sort of thing. And in particular, I remember a description of one small convention in London, I think it was, with photographs. And even in 1953-54, there were three women there. That seems like a lot, actually. (laughs) So there were a lot of, there began to be conventions in the late 30s. The very first one was in May of 1938, which had 100 attendees. And these were the focal points of a lot of conflict between the groups. Like one of these early conventions, the Futurians were not invited, but they showed up anyway. And there was kind of a back and forth as to whether they would be let in. And the organizer, I think it was uh, Moskowitz, was like, okay, you can come in if you promise not to misbehave. And of course they came in and they misbehaved and some of them got thrown out. I think the police were called. I don't know if it got to that point, but it was definitely people being thrown out. And the Futurians were following the lead of their leader, Wolheim. They were kind of assholes. They were trolls. So they were bringing in signs and waving signs and they were shouting political slogans. And it was pure trolldom. And once again, Asimov was supposedly part of a group that was being kicked out but in complete innocence, he just strolls on in. Oh, yeah. And when he comes out, he's a hero for having crossed the line. Right. He was oblivious. The best way to describe Asimov during all of this stuff was that he was completely oblivious. He just thought, hey, isn't science fiction great? Here's a bunch of nerds just like me that love science fiction. And he was just so happy to be a part of that and to be around people just like him. And there were one or two girls there, so that was probably an attraction. But despite the Futurians being a a group of trolls, they did have some fairly distinguished alumni. Frederick Pohl, Cyril Kornbluth, James Blish, Damon Knight, and there was others as well. So they were a influential group. They were a group that was at the center of science fiction. And for instance, John W. Campbell, who was located in New York, so he was in personal contact with a lot of these people. We've talked about his relationship with Asimov. Oh, and I just want to mention... When Asimov walked into these fan groups, he was already a published author. 
I don't think he was published in Astounding yet, but he had been published elsewhere. He had several stories published. So he walked into this group as a published author, which gave him immediate stature. But again, he was oblivious, and he probably didn't really take advantage of that at all. Was he the only published author? I, I don't at the know time? about that. I, that may or may not be. He certainly was an exception. If there was other published writers, there weren't very many, and if they had, maybe had only published one story. Campbell encouraged them, of course, but he kept his distance. He didn't let them get too close to the magazine because he was fully aware of all of this personality conflicts, the trolling, the and he was not a Marxist. John W. Campbell was definitely not a Marxist, so I don't think he was very fond of Wolheim and his politics and some of the other members of the group that shared that. The conventions were important. Campbell went to the conventions. He would speak at the conventions. Of course, he loved that. You know, I can just imagine his ego being stroked, a hundred adoring fans hanging on every word. So that was right up his alley. But to a broader discussion of fandom, reading about the struggles between these two groups and the trolling and the personal nature of this, how it became very heated, really reminds me of a lot of fandom today. Wouldn't you agree? It seems like things haven't changed all that much. It's pretty much the same. We had a multi-year convention in Milwaukee. I think it lasted about 10, 12 years, and it died out from infighting. I think it was called XCON. Well, there's two conventions. One of them outgrew Milwaukee, and it had to move to a city with a larger venue. Gen Con, that was Gen Con. Gen Con, yeah. Yeah, Gen Con outgrew Milwaukee. If there was another one, if you're not thinking of Gen Con, then it did die out. Yeah, XCON went, I think, until 92, 93. In a story I told in another podcast, I went there to get an autograph of a science fiction writer that my mother had dated. This reminds me of a little anecdote for Steve and I. Back in those early days when we were discussing going to one of these conventions, we posed a question to each other. What costume could we wear to a science fiction convention where we would stick out as weirdos? I remember and, that. And I believe that what we came down, we didn't do this. This is something we discussed doing and we never did do. But the decision that we came down to was if we wanted to stick out at a science fiction convention as the weirdos, it would be to dress up as like flamboyant cowboys. Yes, cowboys. This was before. Not, not like a realistic cowboy, but like a silent era, really flamboyant cowboys with big hats and wide fluffy lapels and pink chaps. And This was before Firefly. The cowboy costume would now be Oh, yeah. Legit. If we would have showed up in just an, a regular cowboy costume, that would have been a little odd. Oh, I think a lot. You know, people would have just like, what? They would have been like, what story is that guy from? You know, <laughs> what franchise do you yeah, represent? Yeah. But, but like a flamboyant dime store cowboy outfit, people would have been like, why are you? What are you doing here? What? What is your problem? We're thinking more like Tex Ritter. Yeah, like the old singing cowboys. Remember the old singing cowboys where they'd be playing a guitar, riding a horse. Oh, on the lone prairie. <laughs> It's sad that we never followed through on that. I think the point of that trolling would have been to say, well, you guys are all dressed up as things. Yeah. You know, and Who's the weirdo? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That would have been disrespectful, but I'm kind of sorry we didn't do that. Well, we were young. But, you know, when you look at fandom, one of the issues that comes up is gatekeeping. To me, this is really interesting because myself, I'm a big fan of James Bond. 
that's probably the thing that I'm the most geekiest about is James Bond. And I believe that James Bond ought to be a very clear thing, that James Bond should not change much at all, that James Bond should still be the martini swilling, suave, sophisticated man of the world who's also a ruthless killer and who sleeps with women abundantly. But we're in danger, based on some of the comments I've heard from the Broccoli family, the people that own the James Bond franchise, that James Bond needs to change with the times. That's a huge red flag to me, that they're going to change the nature of James Bond in a way that I find unacceptable. If James Bond becomes unfashionable, that's all right. That's life. Let the franchise die. That's right. the way I feel about it. There's a series of science fiction books that I absolutely loved, and it lasted so long that the technology became so obviously incorrect, and then the series died. And I prefer that to them changing that series to make it more modern. Right. So you have hardcore fans like me in Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel, any number of franchises that are out there today, or franchises that have been in the past. You have the hardcore group of fans that want it to be the same thing always. They want it to stay unchanged. They just want the same kind of stories, the same characters. They don't want the world that it's built in to change. As a fan, I understand that, and I agree with that. But as a writer, I also look at that and say, well, that's to some degree a hindrance that maybe within those expectations of a franchise or a world that there should be room for some degree of experimentation and change. I mean, I think it's a good thing when it comes to James Bond that James Bond is not as rapey as he used to be. That was a positive change for the franchise when we got rid of that. So a natural evolution is okay. Let me just put it this way. Taking away an aspect of the James Bond character that was not cool in 1965 to me is not a problem. You didn't change the essential nature of James Bond. You just took one little aspect of it, his violent and not cool treatment of women in some cases, and just kind of eliminated that. But you still kept the fact that he was a womanizer. You still kept the fact that he slept around a lot, that he charmed women, and all the other things. There's a difference between tweaking around the edges and maybe eliminating a few genuinely objectionable things about a character and wholesale changing the character to the point where they almost become unrecognizable. At that point, you might as well say, we feel it's too old-fashioned. We have a new series with this guy instead. Well, I'll give you a great example. Tarzan. They made a pretty good Tarzan movie a couple years ago with one of the Skarsgård boys, and it was a good Tarzan movie. It was a well-made movie, but it bombed, and I watched it, and I'm like, eh. I enjoyed Tarzan movies when I was a kid, and this was a decent cult Tarzan movie, but I kind of felt like this is a character whose time is gone. I don't think you can make a proper Tarzan movie anymore. It's just one of those stories that feels outdated and out of fashion. It's been around for so long, the world, the entire world has changed. Yeah, and there's probably other examples we could think of, but I don't think there was a huge fandom of Tarzan fans out there who were demanding a by-the-book Tarzan adaptation. And it's kind of like, we've talked about this before, like like Westerns. Westerns isn't completely dying out. There's some Western TV shows that are kind of successful. But what you get now is modern-day Westerns because you've got the problematic issue of Native Americans. It's hard to make a old-fashioned Western that involves Native Americans 
that's another genre that isn't completely dying out, but it doesn't have a huge passionate fan base like science fiction does. So the fan bases that do remain loyal, it's still a bit of a dilemma between the idea of maintaining what made that thing popular and updating it or giving the people that are working in in that thing the freedom to play around with the form and with the tropes and everything else. When a property becomes popular enough to become a franchise, it's based off of something that's locked in time, and you're carrying that with you over the years in the franchise, and there's going to be a growing difference between the mood, the atmosphere, the attitudes, everything in that franchise and what we're facing in real life. There's like a formula here or a line, a linear graph that complete paralysis on one end. In other words, I don't want anything to change about this franchise or character. It has to be the same thing all the time forever, which I think is a passage to oblivion. I think eventually that thing is just going to lose all of its fan base because the the people that really care about it are going to die or move on to other things and new fans are not going to pick up on it and it's going to die. And we've got great examples of that. There's Doc Savage. Remember Doc Savage? Hugely popular in the 1930s. The paperbacks when they were reissued in the 1960s, hugely popular. They tried to make a movie in the 1970s. It bombed and Doc Savage's disappeared off the map. There's other examples we could probably point to. I don't know if you can think of any. I can think of several. All the movie series of the 30s and 40s, Charlie Chan, Sherlock Holmes, Dead End Kids, Mon Pa Kettle. I'm sure you know some. Yeah, like the Dead End Kids in particular, they lasted almost 20 years. It was always the same gang in a new adventure, and eventually people lost interest. Right, right, yeah. So what I'm saying is, on the one end of the extreme, you have the stasis of never-changing that kills, potentially kills off something. And then along that line, you've got, you move that thing forward, making changes to it that brings in a new generation of fans without losing the old generation of fans. And you keep it alive. You keep it going. The Bond franchise is probably the best example of that, that somehow they've managed to make just minor changes to Bond over the years. In the 1970s, they got kind of silly. That kind of petered out. They came back and were a little more serious. And, you know, you change the actor every now and then. And they've done a really good job of keeping the thing going, making some changes to it, and building new generations of fans as they go. But then if you go too far, then you alienate the original fans and you may not develop the new fans as much and you have a gradual die-off of the franchise. So getting back to science fiction, um, I think that existed all the way back in the 1930s. They wanted a certain kind of science fiction. They wanted rocket ships and alien monsters and a certain amount of space opera. And they wanted science super science stories. And Campbell and others wanted to push the envelope a little bit and write more solidly grounded science. So I think that tension's always existed in, in science fiction fandom. Any further thoughts, Steve, on fandom? Someday I should throw in a further thought instead of always saying, nope, that about covers it. But today I will say, nope, that about covers it. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 22. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. 
I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.